Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a multi-award winning Nigerian author. Her debut novel, Stay With Me, about a young Yoruba woman's experience of infertility and child loss, was published in 2017 to huge critical acclaim. It was translated into 20 languages and named Book of the Year by numerous publications. Her highly anticipated second novel is A Spell of Good Things. It's about two young Nigerians from vastly different backgrounds brought together in catastrophic circumstances. Ayavami Adebayo, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much, Georgina. It's such a pleasure to have you in the studio. I've followed the evolution of this book through your editor, Ella Wakatama, who has been raving about it. I finally finished it last night, and I have to say the title, A Spell of Good Things, is quite misleading. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Yes, that comes from one of... The characters is having a reflection at some point in the in the novel, and I think she thinks to herself, if I remember correctly, that she felt that life for her had been a series of battles with the occasional spell of good things. So yeah, <laughs> let's talk about your life and the good and bad things that you've been through. Because you were born in Nigeria to a, a middle class family. Your mother was a doctor, and Yet this other Nigeria exists too. Tell me about that childhood, because you were quite a political family. Yes, uh, I think I grew up interested in politics. And I think that came down from my my grandfather, my mother's father, and down to my mother. One of my earliest memories is just sitting in my grandfather's living room late into the night, and hearing him discuss politics with his friends, with his brothers, sometimes till midnight, you know. And it sort of carried on over to my family. Sunday afternoon tradition was just reading the newspapers. would have like four at least. And we'll just pass it around all afternoon and then in the evening begin to discuss and argue. It was it was really quite um, invigorating. And of course that comes out in your novels because both of them are very political, although set at different times within Nigeria's history. And it also, your second book certainly focuses on education and your education is interesting because your family could have afforded to send you to anywhere. And of course, there are some very good schools in Nigeria. Tell me about your, your education. So I, by the time I came, I was about to go to secondary school. My mother had gone to public school. Uh, my father had gone to one too. And there was a really good school close to us. And um, that's where I started. So I was there for my first term of secondary school. But I think that was sort of the turning point for public education at the secondary school level in Nigeria. Because by the time that term was over and my mother sort of, she looked at my notes and evaluated what I knew, they made the decision that I would go to a private school. And I was the first sort of in the family to do that. And so it was something interesting to think about in relation to the novel, this particular moment in time when 
many of these infrastructures start to sort of collapse on themselves. Mm. And that is very much examined within the novel, and we, we will talk about that. You talk about, in previous interviews, I've heard you discuss that you were encouraged to read, that you had access to, to various libraries, and that you actually started writing very young. In fact, one of your mother's patients uh, read one of your pieces. Yeah, so I so said writing really young, and many times I would give it to my mum to type up. Uh, for me and so there was some story I wrote I think it was about two pages it was it had a very very devastating ending and um, one of my mother's residents she was a consultant then and one of our resident doctors read it and was really upset about it and so my mother said who wrote this yeah so it was something that I started doing really early on I didn't think of it as a career I didn't think of it necessarily as what I was going to spend a lot of my time on doing so when I was nine or 11 or 12 it was generally something I did when I was bored with what was going on in class <laughs> I would just sit there with my notebook and write what I was thinking not what the teacher was saying and so you went to a university in Nigeria. What did you study there? Um, so I studied literature because by the time I was about 15, I was very, very interested in literature. And I was, I think I decided on that thinking of a life as an academic, really. I did not necessarily think of it as interconnected to my writing. I decided to study literature because I wanted to think and write about literature, you know. So I did four years of literature in the first degree and then did an MA in literature. And this is literature in English? Literature in English, yeah. Uh, were there any Nigerian writers writing in Nigerian dialects that particularly inspired you? Oh, yes. So there are, uh, I would say, sort of Yoruba classics, you know, that were available in the house. There were plays, actually, you know, for some reason, my family had a number of plays in Yoruba that that had been published in book form and were available at home. So there was Adibayo Faliti's Spasharunga. So I was reading quite a number, I had quite a number of multiple influences. And so when you're writing, are you thinking and writing in Yoruba or, or in English? And I wonder how Yoruba influences your sort of English turn of phrase. Yes. So and with dialogue in particular, it's something that I need to ask myself when I'm writing a scene because I, I have to ask myself what language are they speaking to each other. And many times if it's a domestic scene, they're more likely speaking Yoruba to each other. Even if they're a family that is very well educated and speaks English, if it's a professional scene, it's most likely going to be English. So I'm thinking about that as I'm moving from scene to scene and thinking of how I can carry over rhythm, you know, from one language into the other. So that's one of the things that I have to consider when I'm working. Mm. What about ethnic tensions between Igbo and Yoruba? Because I know, for instance, your own marriage is mixed. Yes, so I'm married to a lovely Igbo man. And um, with this book, that was, it doesn't come to the fore, but it's sort of there, you know. I, I feel like it might be something that I explore a little more later, that there's a love match that is sort of twatted because of the prejudice, you know, one family has against uh, the Igbo family in this instance that 
the mother could not countenance the idea that her daughter was going to marry into another culture, another language, you know, and all of that. So there's a bit of that in this novel too. Mm. Now, the Nigerian elections are coming up very soon and they are being billed as the most kind of consequential elections for a generation. And as we said, you've been writing about the political background to all of this for years. Both of your both of your published novels are based on that. And I just wanted to understand a little bit more from you the kind of the differences within Nigerian society? Um, It's a lot to explain, but if I'm to think of this particular political moment, I think there are a number of things that are converging at this point. And one of it is that in 2020, there was the NSAS protests against police brutality in Nigeria, particularly against young people. And that came to a very catastrophic end. But I do think that a lot of the energy and the anger and the frustration that many young Nigerians feel is driving, you know, motivation in relation to these elections. And I do agree with the idea that it's the most consequential in recent times that many Nigerians feel that that there needs to be, something needs to give at this point if there won't be any negative consequence after the elections. So, yeah, so I I think one of the things that is converging, I guess, is also a generational tension. You Mm. know, they're really young people. It's a very, there's a a very large young population and a lot of the people in power are from a totally different generation. And there's there's that tension, you know, in worldview, in what we desire for the country and all of that. And in the in the book, in A Spell of Good Things, the governor election is about to happen and you have a man, two men running for governor, one of them enormously corrupt mm. uh, and very, very violent. Mm. And your protagonist, uh, who comes from a very poor background, not really sure what he's getting into. Mm. And I wonder how much that's reflected in the reality of, of what's going on within Nigerian politics. I think there's quite a bit of it that is reflected. I think, for instance, at the beginning of the novel, one of the characters was the tailor, is thinking about how the politicians come every four years and they bring all these gifts. And I think there's that transactional sense in which, in many instances, and it's even happening now, some of the politicians are sort of coming with this gift and nothing else. You know, no no manifesto, no real commitment to development in the next four years. So that, you know, I think it perpetuates a cycle of poverty and a cycle of keeping people in a vulnerable place where when you come four years later with a bag of rice, people are so desperate to have that, you know. Yes, so I think that quite a bit of it comes from some of the things that I'd observed and I'd thought about and considered. How much had you come across that kind of grinding poverty which you describe so brilliantly in the book? I mean, I think that it wasn't something that I experienced personally, but the the part of town that I'm writing about, my maternal grandparents still live there and I visit quite often and sometimes spend quite a bit of time. My grandmother is still alive and I take every opportunity I can to spend time with her. So it's a community that I, I'm, I'm able to observe. And one of the things that I think about in relation to it was that my mother grew up in that community and there were still enough infrastructure in the 
larger society for her to have, say, what I would call upward mobility. And going back there as often as I have and just observing the neighbours and some of the people who live even in my grandmother's house, I don't see that the facilities that were available to my mother's generation are there anymore, you know. They're definitely just not there, you know, in terms of public education. My mom's family, her parents were not well-to-do, but all their children were able to go to school because they were good public schools. That is not possible for many people anymore. Mm. And there are many, uh, it seems to me, autobiographical strands that you've taken from that because the other character in your book is a, is a young trainee doctor. I know your your sister is a doctor too. Uh, and, and her mother, of course, is this upwardly mobile person who's come from this poor background and now is this kind of flamboyant and very glamorous <laughs> woman. And what I also loved was that your descriptions of various sort of rites of passage. Uh, So, for instance, I wonder if you could tell us about the introduction ceremony. So, in the book, your protagonist is is going to get married Mm -hmm. and we hear all about those preparations. Yes. So, I mean, the introduction ceremony in quite a number of cultures in Nigeria, in my culture in particular, when you want to get married, it's not just about you and the person that you fall in love with or that you care about. It becomes a conversation between two families. So the introduction ceremony is before the wedding and it's sort of the first time that the family comes together. So your parents obviously are there, your uncles and your aunties. It depends on how big your family wants to cast the net. And every it's it's a really lovely ceremony, actually. And everybody just sort of stands up and introduces themselves and say, oh yeah, hello, I'm XYZ and I'm the groom's auntie and I've known him since I was born, you know. And it's an opportunity to get to know a wider family set up. So it is, it used to be very, I think, less, it was always ceremonial, but I guess less party-ish than it is now. But now it's sort of become in many instances, a big do and Mm. people prepare for it and have special outfits for it. And um, it is really the beginning of the integration of two families. It's not a marriage, but people regard it as as close as you get to one. And once people have sort of done the introduction, it's almost a given that the marriage is going to happen. Mm. And of course, as you say, these fabulous outfits and all the aunties, and you you introduce us to the aunties and the whole kind of um, hierarchy that happens within families and who has to bring what. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating for me. Absolutely. I wanted to look at, I, I find families very interesting. I think that they are such repositories of some of the most complex emotions and experiences that we have as humans. And there is a lot of love and there is also sometimes a lot of resentment and they have political organisations. I think once there's more than two people, alliances begin to form across all kinds of divides. And I, I, it's something that I'd observed and I was very interested in. And with these sisters, it was just, I think their chapter was quite fun for me to write, thinking about their relationship and where they are and how happy they are that the youngest sister is now turning 50, having given that they'd, they'd lost their parents when the parents were quite young. And then, you know, everyone has to bring something. And that's the thing about the extended family, that 
people contribute, you know, and come together and everybody feels a sense of responsibility. And of course, in that, there's then a bit of politics, like who brought what? And this chicken is better than that chicken. <laughs> and who's wearing what? No, that looks terrible and you shouldn't wear that. And whilst this is very much obviously rooted in Yoruba culture, I don't think you can... I hate the the phrase, an African novel. I think you're kind of ghettoizing writing in a way. And although it has those very strong, it's pinned very strongly with within that kind of milieu, if you like, it has universal themes. We all know the aunties who go, you should never wear that. Red looks terrible on you. Absolutely. I think everybody's got that auntie. Um I think I think that as a reader and also as a writer, that in terms of what I grew up reading and what I enjoyed, you know, we had a British Council library that would come into town, I think, every week. And my mother would take me there and I would borrow books. And quite a lot of the things I was reading were very specific to England. And I'd never been to England at that point. But those books meant a lot to me and transported me. And I connected to the characters. I remember reading um, The Go Between and just weeping. <laughs> and just weeping as a teenager. And then by the time I started to write, I it was something that I also wanted to do. That to write the particular in a way that... Anybody who comes to it can recognise, you know, our common humanity. And I think that's one of the things that literature does. Yeah, absolutely. So well. And I so identify with that about reading about a country that you've never visited. And, you know, even now, when I see, like, daffodils or snow or something, I feel, oh, look, it's just like the books I read. I still yeah. haven't got used to it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and then there's the experience of the first time that you then you're like, oh, this is what ginger beer tastes like. <laughs> Because, of course, you did come here and you studied at UEA. Yeah. Um, and I know that you had some incredible teachers there. Yes, absolutely. Um, the faculty was incredible. My classmates were really talented. And it was just a fantastic experience. I think it was that year that we had um, Margaret Hartwood come in as the professor of UNESCO professor of literature, I think. And she was with us for a term. And it, it was such a fantastic experience. It was the first year when... Writing was my job. You know, it was I, I had that window and that freedom to concentrate on it. Uh, before then, I'd been working. I worked first in a bank and then in an engineering institute. And I was writing in the early hours of the morning or... And then I'm thinking to myself, should I write that report or should I write the story? But I had this year and it was so precious to me that... I could just think about writing and talk about writing and I had the opportunity to meet with such talented people every single week. It was it was wonderful. I mean that program at the University of East Anglia, that that writing program is is world renowned for having amazing teachers. Right now I think uh Tsuti Dangaremwa, who is a Zimbabwean writer of nervous conditions, I'm sure many of our listeners have, have heard of her. But she's so influential, I think, particularly to, to this generation of, yes. of writers and not just African writers. Yeah. But that course has has done so much for so many. And when you talk about sitting there really thinking about your writing. I think some people may think, well, that's you sit there and make up stories, but it's more about things like how to construct a sentence. Yes. It's how, what what am I doing with this sentence? Does the rhythm work right? You know, and by the time you are moving from the sentence and then to the paragraph, and then you have this sprawling story in your mind, and it takes a while to get it from the ideas that you have to 
the word on the page because the initial draft, you, you write it and then you look at it and you know, this is not what I'm thinking. And then you go back and then you keep. And part of what that year does for you is that it gives you the opportunity to learn how to do that, to develop that skill and just the persistence that it sometimes requires. And I guess the confidence that you can do this. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, it might take a while, but you will get to the end of this. You will figure out how one chapter goes into the next one and how it doesn't all fall apart and how to develop the character. You know, you, you might know the character. How do you introduce them to your reader? Mm. Yeah. And the structure of a book. I mean, this book is in, in four definite kind of parts. Yeah. Um, and you just, you're building and building and building that tension till it comes, you know, spoiler alert, but there is an, uh, an ending that I was not expecting, oh. given the title <laughs> of the book. Um, I just want to look back a little bit at your at your first novel, mm-hmm. Stay With Me, because mm-hmm. that was about the struggle to conceive and, and mm-hmm. child loss and so on. And I know that you've just had your own little baby. Yes. <laughs> and I wonder how difficult it is mm. writing something with that level of emotion in it when you're actually, you're, you're experiencing something similar yourself. Mm. I mean, when I was writing Stay With Me, actually, I wasn't trying to have a baby yet. But it was still quite difficult. Um, I think that for me, I... I generally, I only write things I truly care about. If I don't care so much, I wouldn't finish the project, so I would just leave it. And I write the people, by the time I'm writing a character, I get very invested in them. And I remember, you know, writing Stay With Me, and there was one weekend when I, I just stayed in, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I remember that by Sunday... I was feeling very, very down, and I, I, I remember at some point I just shut down my, I just shut down my laptop, and I just went out of the house, and I just kept walking for like an hour, just to dissipate some of the despair that I was feeling, along with the character. So I, I think that it's sort of always. Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if I could bear to write it now, now that I have a child. Mm. I, I don't know that I could. Mm. But I, I suppose if if it's a story that I feel that needs to be told, I will have to go there. But it, it was it was a difficult book to write. Really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back to those autobiographical themes in the latest book, A Spell of Good Things. There's an abusive relationship. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's autobiographical, mm-hmm. but she does also have this wonderful platonic friendship mm-hmm. with somebody. And I know that you met your husband at university. You were friends for 14 years. <laughs> yeah, I think we were friends for about two years, and then we. <laughs> sort of became more than friends and then <laughs> yeah yes it was um we met when we were teenagers and we both loved to write I was studying literature he was studying law and um we met in a choir and then I think the first day we met we got talking I'm like oh I write and it's like oh I write too. and and then we, we stayed friends since then and he went to New York to study art writing I, I came to England we stayed in touch. We would run into each other. I mean, we would see each other almost every year. Either he would be in London, I would be in New York, or we would both be in Nigeria. And um, at some point, I think that we would just realise that we were actually more than friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something shifted in the friendship, and it's it was it was wonderful to finally acknowledge to acknowledge that and finally realise that. I don't know. I mean, he had always been a very, very good friend and someone whose opinion and 
presence in my life that I treasured. You know, it's mm. it's yeah, I feel very fortunate. And in the book, of course, there is this character Kingsley who yeah. I think f- kind of fulfills <laughs> that role. Now, as you say, your husband is a writer. Mm-hmm. You have this baby who's not quite a year old. He's I have to tell the listeners he's currently asleep in the yeah. green room with your husband, with his daddy. And I wonder how that works on a domestic level. Two writers and a tiny child. <laughs> How does that work? I think are you very tired? <laughs> I am very, very tired. Uh, I mean, I feel like oh, we're both just trying to get through, I guess, the first two years. Is that when they start sleeping well? I don't know. I, I guess we've figured out how to wait to make it work. I feel like it's... I, I feel like one of the good things about it for me is just the recognition, like being with another writer who recognises what I need to create... I don't know. I feel like if I was in another situation, someone, I mean, he sometimes he would take the baby for hours and hours so I can just sit with myself. Um, even if I'm not working, that he understands how important it is to have some quiet in your mind, mm. you know, to be able to get into a creative space. And I, I think it's just generally what parenting is like. It's, it's everything is you can't schedule anything anymore, really. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you met in a choir. And of course, I know that you both play the piano. And somebody who was at your house the other day told me that you have this fantastic tradition when your guests leave. <laughs> yes, so sometimes we sing. Yes. I haven't, I, I don't think, I haven't been in a choir in a, in a really long time. So my singing is very, very rusty. <laughs> but Ella, Ella tells me that you were like, OK, what do you want to sing? We'll play you anything you like. She chose a song. You sat down at the piano, played it away. doesn't matter whether you know it or not. And you all just, it's such a great way, isn't it? To You expand your lungs and it, I think it boosts your endorphins, doesn't it? I think it, I find it very relaxing actually you know sometimes when I'm under a lot of pressure or I'm stressed out I just don't start to sing to myself sometimes yeah was there a song that was going through your head when you were writing <laughs> this book so there, there's always music actually I think when I'm thinking about a book or when I'm writing a book I tend to put a song on repeat so there's Nina Simone song that sort of goes I put a spell on you because you're mine. So I had that on my mind quite a bit because, I mean, spell, spell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course there's a, there's lots of mention of music in the book. There's yes. kind of CDs that go on on repeat. And, yes. Yeah. African Queen. Yeah, African Queen, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it, it's just, I, I can't stress enough how how this spoke to, to me in ways that any woman who's grown up anywhere, it doesn't matter if it's Africa or not, all of these things are are, are in there. And it just, uh, despite the fact that, uh, and again, this isn't a spoiler, that there isn't a particularly happy ending. <laughs> it is a book that makes you think. And I wonder what you're thinking about now. What's next? Um, what's next? I'm thinking about another book. I'm hoping I can really get into it perhaps in a few months when I've had some sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I can think a little more clearly than I tend to these days. Well, I think this one is wonderful. Your first one was brilliant. I cannot wait for the third. Oh, thank you so much, Regina. (laughs) A Spell of Good Things is written by Ayobami Adebayo. It's published by Canongate and it's out now. Ayobami, many thanks. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Lillian Fawcett. 
And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.